Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels feels The moment you decide. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, We're calling this the History of Christian... No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um, yes. And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. So, a history of Christian theology. Um, I'm Chad Kim. We have uh, Trevor Adams and Tom Velasco. All right. Great. Eventually, he is met in a vision by an older lady who turns out to be the church. His final guide is a shepherd who leads him through the commandments and the parables, hence the name of the book. There are twelve commandments, and so should not be confused with the ten commandments of the Old Testament. The commandments fit within the mores of the New and Old Testaments, uh, and, for example, one should be faithful to God, faithful to one's wife, serve the poor, shun evil and the devil, to name a few. The significant theological issues center on the place of repentance and sin after repentance. While the book is a bit contrary on this point, there seems very little mercy after repentance for those who continue in their sin. Finally, there are ten parables that comprise about 30 pages in the Antinicene Father's Collection. Tending towards a nauseating tedium, these parables basically say that most people fail to follow through on their repentance Uh, And the church will endure to the end, despite all of those who fail to follow through with their repentance. Much is made of the individual's ability to persevere in good works, with basically little help from God in order to receive the final reward as a fixture of the church which God is building. Curiously absent is any mention of how the Holy Spirit works, what Jesus' death and resurrection have to do with this, or any quotations of New Testament passages, and ultimately... Why would Irenaeus or Origen want to cite this uh, in a similar vein to how they cite what eventually becomes the New Testament? There are many reasons to believe this is a early to mid-2nd century text, as it is quoted by authors who are known to have lived in the late 2nd century. Well, here's our conversation. Please excuse the audio discrepancies. Tom and Trevor's computer stopped working halfway through, and they resorted to recording from their iPad. We are looking to get the audio problems fixed shortly. Here's our conversation. As I read Hermas, it seems pretty old. And, and the reason why it seems old to me is, one, it makes sparse, it, it sparsely quotes the New Testament. Yeah. There are some clear allusions to New Testament passages and even a quote or two, but it sparsely quotes it, which seems odd for a text that is supposed to have popped up in the 160s. Uh, You throw in the fact that Irenaeus, who would have been alive during the Montanus heresy, actually, from what I read, regarded the Hermas as scripture. Right. Right? I mean, so in order for something to be considered scripture, it has to have been around a while because there has to have been some circulation for Irenaeus to be able to sit there and even have that view. Yeah. Now, Tertullian, it said, thought that it was uh, not authentic, that it was... Uh, pseudepigraphal, meaning that it wasn't. Well, it might have been written by a guy uh, by a guy named Hermes, but the question is: is and just I assume we're recording now, right? Everything right. Is, yeah. Um, the question that I think 
our audience would need to kind of consider when thinking about this text is a lot of Christians regarded this book as being written by uh, the Hermas, whom Paul references in the book of Romans. However, there is this thing that for whatever reason, people just love if they see one guy's name in the Bible and <laughs> yeah. see another book written by, the, by a guy the same name, just equating the two, as if these aren't names that proliferate all over the place, as if there, yeah. might, as if there weren't thousands and tens of thousands of Hermeses in the ancient world, and many of whom were possibly Christians, right? I don't think we need to believe that it's the Hermes that Paul references. It's certainly not one of the uh, 12 apostles or anything like that who wrote this text. But all this to say that there were a lot of early fathers who considered it to be scripture or, yeah, who kind of grouped it together with scriptural writings. Nonetheless, there were clearly fathers who didn't. So, you know, my injunction to our audience would be, please do not feel compelled to think of this as scripture at all. Yeah, well, I'm, I personally, I'm quite glad that it didn't make it into scripture. I just don't know that I could handle having to defend this as uh, as part of the Christian canon. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think I have to say to our audience, um, we, all three of us, resoundly did not enjoy this book at all. No. If you, if you ever, if, if you have, if not already read the Shepherd of Hermas, my encouragement would be don't bother. <laughs> article <laughs> on the shepherd of Herman. That'll get you enough yeah. right there. Yeah. yeah. Listen to this really important podcast on the shepherd of Hermes and consider that good. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. Now I, I do have to qualify that. It's not that there wasn't anything good in it. There was some really interesting stuff, but at the same time, that interesting stuff does not counter terrible stuff. The yeah. t- utter tedium of yeah. some of those parables. Oh my goodness! Oh, oh. That were not illustrative of almost anything, and the only reason they had any value was because he then goes back and tells you what they all mean. Because yeah. if he didn't, they'd be utterly worthless. Yes, and just for our readers or our, our listeners, I always say readers. Thank you. Do. I do. <laughs> I was listening to it on the podcast. I'm like, man, for our audience out there, our listeners, if you were to actually go ahead and brave the task and sit down and read this, you would find, as Chad just said, a proliferation of parables, a number of parables that just go on and on for pages. And they mimic parables found in the New Testament. They mimic parables of Jesus. But imagine, say, a parable of Jesus's that goes, I don't know, three or four verses. Uh, in, say, Matthew 13. Now expand that to about 15 pages. Yeah. But it's doing the... It, it, it's it's going into minute detail, analyzing the smallest point, and the smallest point is, I mean, it's just totally useless and impractical. That's really <laughs> what it feels like reading this book. I, it was... I kind of just got lost sometimes and forgot, like, why... I was reading what I was reading and what it was. And <laughs> I'm like, I forget. Why, why is he even talking about this? Oh, right. And then, like, I would forget about the old lady or whatever who's shown him everything. And I just kept forgetting, like, where I was while reading it. And it was not, not what I expected either. But Yeah, yeah. So it begins with a very curious little tale where the guy lusts after a woman and then feels compelled to repent 
and this leads him on this whole quest. But, you know, all he, yeah, I mean, he, he lusts after her. I'm not trying to say that that's, you know, of course, uh, Scripture condemns that as well. But, yeah, it, it takes him on this whole journey that just drags on and on. Uh, but you, I guess that was one thing that I sort of found interesting in this at all was uh, there in the, especially in the East, the far East, there were beliefs that Christians should be celibate. And at first I thought that's what this was leading to, but then they, they sort of recognize that it's okay. Uh, but if you have a wife, you definitely shouldn't lust after another woman. Um, but there's sort of some interesting sexual mores and all of this that, I mean, that was just one thing that, that, jump that stuck out to me yeah like the you t- know, tempting virgins that was <laughs> yeah yeah well i do think that there were a couple of very interesting theological things brought up and the one that i found most interesting in this particular text and, and i should say this text is very different from anything else we've read in mode in the in the um, medium by which he communicates to us so as we pointed out there there are these long parables, these tedious parables that unfold throughout the text. But also, he clearly is copying John the Revelator, you know, in, in the sense that he's conveying this a towards the, I guess, in the third half of the text, a shepherd appears. Um, the angel of repentance, he's called, presumably it's Jesus. But the shepherd appears, and the shepherd is speaking to him very much like, the angel spoke to John in in the Revelation. And so he conveys it almost apocalyptic and so forth. But through it, he teaches teaches some pretty interesting doctrines, some of which I take a great deal of contention with. Uh, The biggest one for me, and Chad, you brought it up in the email you sent out, is this notion of Christian perfectionism. Right. um, That he essentially teaches that, that God offers forgiveness to the repentant. But once they have repented and become a Christian, so to speak, the implication in some of the passages is that the person cannot then sin. Uh, That if he sins again, that he is going to be cast away. Right. Right. So it says here, for instance, for those who have now believed, this is in chapter three of, man, I don't know, of the second book. Chapter three of the second book, it says, for those who have now believed and those who are to believe, have not repentance for their sins, but they have remission from previous sins. So they're forgiven previous sins, but not things that they commit after uh, becoming Christians. And this is actually a doctrine, just so our listeners are aware, that in different ways has, in fact, uh, persisted in the church. This notion of a Christian perfectionism, that once a person is a believer, he must be perfect. Now, of course... Just, he or she, right? Yeah, he or she. Just so our listeners know, this is definitely, I'm just going to say it, wrong. I mean, just false. There, There is, I, I, I don't believe in any sense, a Christian perfectionism. It wouldn't really make sense either, especially when you have verses like Romans, I think like I think it's 7, is it 15, where Paul is talking about he does the things he doesn't <laughs> want to do and continues to sin and I'm the greatest sinner of them all and it's just it's just insane like I don't I don't know why anyone I can see actually how someone could just read a couple things and without reading all the scripture as a whole just you know infer from a couple verses but it's Mm -hmm. like yeah I think that there are some New Testament verses that can lend credence to this and and I want to 
I, I want to be really sensitive with this because for me in my early Christian life, I was incredibly troubled by these verses because I would read them and think, oh my goodness, I need to be perfect. I would look at my life and go, I'm not perfect. And then I would say, so I must not be a Christian, right? There really are, as far as I can uh, think of, I, I can only think of about, there are only really two passages that come to mind that I could think somebody could use for a justification of this stance. One, which Chad, you referenced in your email, is First John chapter 3, and I'm just going to read them, where John writes and he says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. This is in verse 4. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. That's speaking of Jesus. So he came to take away our sins. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. He actually goes down a little bit further, and he says in verse 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So that, I mean, prima facie, meaning at first glance, you look at that and you go, wow, that really does seem to teach that a Christian absolutely cannot sin once, he's, once he has been born again. So, yeah, there are some passages. Oh, there's one more. Hebrews 10.26. This is the only other verse I can think of in the Bible that could be taken as a Christian perfectionism. Hebrews 10.26, it says, If we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Right. So... This text, yeah, would follow along with that. Um, yeah, one other one that I said that sort of reiterates Hermes's view for the repentance of the righteous has limits. Uh, for the Lord is sworn by his glory in regard to his elect that if any one of them sin after a certain day which has been fixed, he shall not be saved. And uh, just to clarify, that is Hermes not scripture. That's that's actually from Hermas. Right, right. And so you could see how Hermas would connect with some of those passages in which Tom read. I too was troubled more by the Hebrews 10 passage. That that one was the one that was the most difficult always for me. And, you know, we've talked at, at length about what, when you translate 1 John, you know, what kind of text is it? You know, the, the, te- the language of 1 John, the Greek, is the easiest Greek in, in the entire scriptural canon, I, you know, when I taught Greek at Ambrose, we'd do Greek grammar for a year and a half, and then we would read First John because it is the easiest. So I tend to think that that plays into why there's not a lot of the nuance that we might desire for him to sort of say, well, there's, you know, there's a little bit of this and, you know, but he's sort of making and everything about John tends to be very black and white and stark. And he is trying to encourage them, I believe, to live their faith after it after they they've uh, repented, uh, but I don't think that he ultimately means yeah the, the the same thing that Hermes does. But it does bring up to me a sort of question, which is what do we make of the fact that theological um, that well post scripture you know you you begin to have the theologians you begin to have Christians who are trying to work out what the doctrine teaches and or what the scripture teaches and what is true and uh, valuable Christian doctrine um, which I think is interesting that there seem to be sort of maybe errors in the way so it's like when we look back and are reading this text 
it sort of looks like to me, I, when I read that these bits of Shepherd of Hermas and the stories about like Constantine, you know, not getting baptized until his death and others who follow that sort of route, um, I tend to look at that and say, wow, it's amazing how <laughs> the faith went astray for a while or those like him sort of seem to have missed the mark. But isn't that what we would expect? In a, or is that what we should expect um, in a developing you know, faith that like the Christian faith, does that, does that surprise you? Does that like, I mean, you know, so I'm guess I'm asking for some response now. Is it, is it surprising? Is it, uh, or, you know, is it that, or is it just what we would expect with, with how this thing progresses? Well, I think one thing I, I have a few thoughts that I kind of want to respond to that. First, I think Christians have this, this misunderstanding that at the formation of the church, everything was just right. Yeah. That people just, you know, it was just perfect. Yeah. But when you read the book of Acts, you see that that is not the case. You find contentions, you find troubles, you find people not upholding their responsibilities and their duties, right? One of the earliest problems that manifests itself in the church was racism, right? Very early at the outset of, of church history, you have the Greek Christians, their widows, well, I guess they're Hellenized Jewish Christians, really, but their widows are being neglected during the time when the the common meals were being shared. And that's because the people who were sharing them were Jews who basically looked at those Hellenized Jews as like a kind of a subgroup type of thing. They looked at them as secondary. You see in Galatians, Paul rebukes Peter for the same kind of basic racism. You have the debate over circumcision, where patently early Christians thought you had to be circumcised and Paul and Peter come in and say, no, you don't have to be circumcised. So it's not as if just because something is early that makes it true. Right. Uh, Secondly, we have to keep in mind, like we're now finally, we're reading stuff that is a hundred years roughly, or between 50 and a hundred years post, you know, after the time of Christ. I mean, what happened a hundred years ago for, I mean, what, what was the world like a hundred years back from now? Right. I mean, you're talking 19, 15, it's pre-World War One, or it's no, World War One. You're in the midst of World War One. I. I mean, it's a totally different world. So we have to watch out because it's easy, I think, for Christians to read stuff and think, well, it's old, therefore it's true, right? That right. is just not the case. I also just wanted to interject too because I introduced the pat, you know, those passages that I thought were difficult. Chad, you kind of offered a bit of a reconciliation there with First John three. But also just so that our listeners know, and this was something I was very concerned about, because like I said, since I, I struggled with these passages for a while as a Christian, because I think all of us sit back and we go, wait a minute, I still sin a lot. I don't sin a little bit. I sin a lot. And so we see that and we ask ourselves, am I really saved? Like, am I really a Christian? I, I think that, you know, you know, I was a pastor for a number of years. And as a pastor, you just find people struggling with this question so much. And John himself, who wrote that seemingly, that that passage in John 3, where he seems to say, you never sin if you're a believer, he also, in the exact same book, two chapters beforehand, says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he goes, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. He then goes on in chapter 2 and he says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Which is so weird. He calls them little children, which means he thinks they're Christians. 
he's writing them because he doesn't want them to sin. But in chapter 3, he seems to say it's impossible for them to sin. So why would he encourage them not to sin if it was impossible for them to sin? Um, and then he goes, but if anyone does sin, implying, if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the problem is with John and, you know, in Hebrews, I think, has actually a, an easier reconciliation because I think with him, he's actually addressing the psychological component of offering sacrifices. I think he's actually, in the book of Hebrews, he's not telling people that if we sin after we've come to know Christ, that he doesn't forgive us. I think what he's saying is we have this psychological problem. We can't just go and offer a sacrifice in the temple like they used to. So I actually think that what that's what that passage is regarding. Bottom line, though, early in church history, you did have these people popping up and, and who said, you know, who endorsed the kind of Christian perfectionism. I should add, Hermas seems to contradict himself on this issue also. There are passages where Hermas, because Hermas says, oh no, I've sinned, I can't be saved. And then the shepherd will go, don't worry, God will be merciful to you too. So even Hermas is inconsistent. Hermas is inconsistent on this issue. Well, one thing that I would add, you know, just as, uh, you know, we're taking sort of um, time to look over scriptural passages that have resonances to what's going on in Hermas and then seeing how we differ from them. I take this to be something of the task of theology anyway. So as much as it might seem a kind of uh, rabbit trail that doesn't have anything to do with Hermas, I mean, this is kind of what Christians do. They read stuff that are confusing in Scripture. They know that Scripture has an import, an impact um, on their lives, that it's supposed to guide their lives in some way. They they come across, you know, a reality of their life that's difficult. And then they're, you know, and also listening to someone who was some kind of authority. And then they have to say, okay, now where do I sit amidst this? Um, and what am I going to do with the difficulty that I'm hearing from a, uh, from one source and scripture? And how do I make it all come together? You know, I take this to just sort of be the task of theology in general. Um, and Tom said, uh, reconciling the chat, chat, you said, Chad reconciled the first John passage, and then you kind of reconciled the Hebrew passage. We're going to get to Origen and Augustine and other church fathers who are going to give sort of guides as it were, to understanding the scripture when you come upon these things that either seem like contradictions or at least um, are unsettling. And what, how do you interpret? What are your rules for interpretation? Um, so anyway, I just thought that was interesting. We, we are kind of doing this, you know, something of the theological task and just looking at this one question. Well, I'm glad you said that because I actually have a question I want to throw out to you guys based on that, because it seems to me that this question of perfectionism that is so confusing and and really, even what John is getting at is all rooted in this fact that all Christians believe. And that is, number one, that God grants a very merciful forgiveness to those who are in Christ. Right? That is, when we sin, we have the mercy of God awaiting us. Like That's, that's the joy of Christianity. That's the good news of the gospel, that, that we can be forgiven for what we have done because of Christ's death on the cross that we can be reconciled to God, that we can have a relationship with him, even though or in spite of who we were and what we've done. At the same time, oh, I, I, let me add this actually to that first point as well. The gospel is immensely universal. It's offered to everybody, right? The, the idea is who are you? Like, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what sins you've fallen into. 
you can be forgiven. At the same time, the scriptures teach us that the gospel, that the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the Holy Spirit in us, transforms us and changes us and makes us in some sense righteous. The Bible very clearly teaches this. So the question that forces upon us is, what does that look like? Like, like what does it mean practically, concretely in my life that I am born again and that I've been changed? Like, what does that mean about my sin life? Like, am, I mean, obviously Hermes says it means you never sin. We don't believe that. But at the same time, we believe that a change happens. So what does that change look like? Well, I think now we're getting into the territory of being justified and then being sanctified, mm -hmm. which is, I think, probably a later, I think, uh, kind of invention or something that people later distinguish between. But I don't know when, I don't really know when that took off, to be honest. You know? Well, in the first apology to Justin Martyr, he actually mentions divinization, which is the Eastern Church's response to, well, or it's the Eastern Church's understanding of sanctification, which is you can become a God, well, you do become a sort of godlike um, in a very literal sense. Uh, deification, divin, uh, deification is the right word, not divinization, I guess. Um, but which, by the way, that's a really confusing word for Western Christians. Yeah. Because that sounds like we're turning people into gods to be worshipped. But the Eastern Orthodox view is that Christ is formed in you. And so as Christ is formed in you, you increasingly become like Christ. And so in that sense, they call it deification. But what they mean is it's your transformation into uh, being like Jesus. Uh, so it's not held up to be like you become a god that is worshipped or something like that. Well, right. I yeah, and uh, I instantly think of Ephesians five here. I think it's, I think it's just five one. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved chat. I don't remember the rest, but yeah. So it makes makes sense to me um, that they would have been thinking along these lines early on. This is a hundred years after, and if you're seeing passages say all the time like imitate Christ or be like God, um, there's another passage that came up. Like, I can't think of what it is off the top of my head, but, like, be holy as I am holy. That's, where is that? That's somewhere in the Bible. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't it's remember. It's in a couple of places in the Old Testament. I wonder how all this inspired, basically, some practices, I think, that are just around the corner in the church of, like, thinking your sins are sticking to you, in a way, and having to do works to get rid of them, which about to really get adopted in what we kind of call the Catholic Church. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering, I, I thought of that when I read Hermes, and I also thought of, it became a practice, and I don't remember when this became a practice, so maybe we'll just delete this out of the podcast, this is irrelevant, but like to not baptize until the end of your life. And so I wonder if, that's partially inspired because of thoughts like this that were floating around around 150 or so, because there was a, I think pretty stark, starkly different understanding of the whole sanctification and justification issue at this time. And it probably is all completely rooted in what you think the sacrifice of Christ did. I mean, I don't, 
because the way I view it as a Protestant, you know, today, essentially, um, is just he made the sacrifice. And if they're if you think of it as like credits and debits, all all my all my sins are like the debit side is like cleared, essentially, like there is no nothing's being held against me in that sense. There, there's no sin being held against me because of Christ's sacrifice. And so I'm in a process of sanctification where I'm allowing myself to be made more like Christ every day, but there's no sin being held against me. So and I think that is like vastly different because of what you said, Tom, they're still thinking about all this stuff. And I, I don't think anything that refined is maybe really come up yet. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know enough about well, it. Well, I, I would like to add too on that. I mean, what you just said um, about this, this notion of credits and debits, there does come, enter into the church, not only this idea, this, this teaching that uh, of Christian perfectionism, that once you're a Christian, you either will be perfect or must be perfect. But there's also this notion that you are in some sense personally responsible for um, correcting your own faults and for getting your ledger in balance, that is getting the proper number of debits back or number of credits back in place of debits. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which I will want to quickly say about, about that because I forgot to say is we also think now we could never do anything to add to our credit side. Whereas, I mean, we don't, yeah, we don't think we can do anything to earn merit in that sense. Whereas I think probably then they thought that both were still being counted at all times. Like, Stuff was being added to their debit and stuff. They could add stuff back to their credit. Well, I would say nothing we've read has indicated that until this. So okay. no no other thing we've read has indicated this notion that stuff we do, stuff we, like the, the works we do add to our credit side. But there is here this quote uh, where Hermas is talking to the shepherd and he says, tell me, sir, say I, the nature of the good deeds that I may walk in them and wait on them. Here we go. So that the doing of them, I can be saved. And this is one thing that is repeated throughout the Shepherd of Hermas is he, it almost exclusively puts salvation into the hands of Hermas, to the person. In fact, there is, I, I don't think one mention of Jesus's death or resurrection in the Shepherd of Hermas. There's no. one mention of it, which is astonishing for an early Christian writing, for any Christian writing, to make a work in which you talk about Christian theology and say nothing about Jesus's death and resurrection hmm. is a, it's just, it's crazy. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I asked you guys a question earlier and some, one thing that Trevor said reminded me of it. I'm going to try to find a better way to pose it, but, but Trevor mentioned the word refined. I don't think that this has been refined yet. And so there is this sense in which like I can say Jesus died for my sins so that I might, re you know, and, and Jesus resurrected, and when Jesus returns, I will be with God. It seems that at least the early church believed something very simple like that. Jesus died for me. In some sense, Jesus, whatever that death did, it transformed me and my relationship to God. But there hasn't been a refinement, as Trevor says, uh, as to what that means and how that's worked out. This is, you know, some of it's either called atonement or justification. Um, you know, what exactly happened on the cross so that I am made 
right with God, right? The question that I have is, does the scripture itself, do the 27 books of the New Testament, maybe more specifically, is there a clear, you know, a succinct account of justification in the scripture itself? Or is it something that has to be mined by theologians under the work of the Holy Spirit and worked out over time such that we can see confusion in Hermas, um, but we get a sort of clarity, at least in my view, uh, with Augustine and then maybe for, for further muddled up by people like Luther and Calvin. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, you know, I do agree that there's ambiguity and vagueness. I, I don't I don't think it's all that ambiguous and vague in the scripture. I mean, I think that there is a lot that is fleshed out. But at the same time, yeah, I think when we talk about atonement, for instance, the mechanism or the, the manner in which it applies and how it or not, you know, how it works out is not fully explained or why justification works is not fully explained or how the transference of righteousness and, and the the uh, replacement of guilt happens. I, those things are not fully fleshed out in the 27 books of the New Testament. I think they're fleshed out somewhat, though. I mean, I think that there is a lot of theology going on in the New Testament. I don't think that it's all just kind of superly simplistic either, right? Um, so you do see a lot of work uh, being done later. What I would add, though, is I don't think Hermes is doing that work. He is, as far as I can tell, totally ignorant of any teaching concerning justification, <laughs> propitiation, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. As far as I can tell, he's never read anything on it. Right? Yeah. I mean, he, he seems to be unaware that Jesus died for our sins. Tom, <laughs> Tom hates this guy. What he's trying to say. Yeah, Tom there's really hates yeah, this guy. Yeah. Now, Augustine, yes, bring it on. Let's talk about it. But this guy, just, as far as I can tell, this guy is, is basically peddling standard works righteousness fair. I mean, to be honest, he sounds, I mean, I don't mean this in a negative, I, I actually don't take this negatively or don't intend it negatively, but he sounds like somebody coming out of a Jewish tradition, right? Works, it's it's basically Jewish tradition with the addition of baptism. There's no addition of the cross. He talks about the, so he says this conduct of the flesh. So, oh, okay, this is very interesting. He's talking about Jesus and he says this conduct of the flesh pleased God because it was not defiled on the earth while having the Holy Spirit. So he's saying Jesus in the flesh pleased God because he never sinned. He took therefore as fellow counselors, his son and the glorious angels in order that this flesh, speaking of Jesus's, which has been subject to the body without a fault might have some place of tabernacle and that it might not appear that the reward for the flesh that has been found without spot or defilement in which the Holy Spirit dwelt. And he goes, he goes on and says, I rejoice, sir, to hear this explanation, he says, keep this flesh pure and stainless, that the spirit which inhabits it may bear witness to it, and your flesh may be justified. So I know that's confusing reading. I probably shouldn't have read it. But what he's essentially saying, as far as I can tell, is that Jesus was a really, really, really good, perfect man. And because of his good righteousness, God adopted him as his son. And then he's essentially saying, we need to use Jesus as our example and be plain up pure and blameless like he is and this sounds like an early teaching from the first and second century uh, an early heresy called uh, the ebionite heresy and the ebionites more or less were non-jewish people who adopted old jewish teachings and they held up jesus as like the perfect pinnacle 
of Jewishness, like the fulfillment of the law, and only look at him as an example. And that the only thing he really gave us was, hey, repent and follow the law. And if you do it perfectly, you'll be saved. That was more or less the Ebionite teaching. So I, 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 I'm under the impression that Hermas is just a straight up heretic. I mean, uh, you know, again, as I've said before, I do, you know, I know it was just said that I hate this guy. He <laughs> says a lot of interesting things that um, I think, you know, that actually inspired me in certain ways. Not a lot, a few. But the book, but he, he seems to be a heretic as far as I can tell. Well, here's just a, maybe more succinctly in uh, the 10th similitude, my version says, or parable. But I enjoy in you that you obey his commands and you will have a cure for your former sins. Yes. Yeah. Done. Huh. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not the gospel as I understand it, right? Yeah, <laughs> not at all. Well, the one other, you know, one other little tidbit that was just, I mean, I, you know, there's not a whole lot to say on this. Speaking of Augustine and the development of the doctrine of the original, well, we haven't talked about the, the development of the doctrine of original sin, but a sort of standard telling of the Christian story is, you know, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, the fall part coming and being very, um, uh, well, at least fleshed out very thoroughly by Augustine. Clearly, Hermas doesn't agree with that, right? So uh, in uh, the similitude ninth, uh, the parable ninth, and they who believe from the twelfth mountain, which was white, are the following. They are as infant children, and whose hearts no evil originates, nor did they know what wickedness is, because always remained as, but always remained as children. Uh, so the, any idea of transferred sin, sinfulness, sinful nature, any of that seems to be totally absent uh, from his thought. Yeah, the, he sounds like a Pelagian, like a pre, a pre third, uh, a pre fourth century Pelagian, or yeah, pre fourth century Pelagian. Which, for our listeners who are not aware of who Pelagius is, he was kind of Augustine's um, his arch nemesis. Uh, the the big <laughs> thing about Lex Pelagius, Luther. <laughs> yeah, wait, say that again. I said he was his Lex Luther. Yes, he was. He was Augustine's Lex Luther. And Pelagius denied a sin nature, the idea that we were born sinful, and he believed that we could attain righteousness uh, basically through effort of will, that we have the ability to be perfect. And that is, from what I, it sounds like what Hermes is saying. Again, the only thing I want to say to be fair to Hermes is there are times when he seems to contradict it. Like Hermes himself will say, well, then I'm never going to be saved because I've been a terrible guy. And usually the shepherd will say something like, oh, don't worry, God's really merciful or something along those lines. Right. So there is that little side to Hermas, but. Hmm. Yeah, um, I, the only other thing that I sort of took that I like, I, I don't even know if it's as good advice exactly, but it maybe it reflects a sort of an early church view of some kind or at least early you know, uh, somewhat followers of Christ view. He says, uh, when talking about charity, he said, never ask yourself, uh, how does he say it? It's like, don't even question why or whether you should just give money. Um, <laughs> you know, which I just thought was interesting because like whenever, like, you know, in St. Louis, we have lots of panhandlers. Um, and, and, uh, I actually gave money the other day to someone and I don't normally do that. Um, uh, 
And, uh, but this guy, you know, so he just says, you, you know, not hesitating as to whom you are to give or not to give. Give to all, for God wishes his gifts to be shared amongst all. Very, very sort of communitarian communist, uh, if you like. But I thought that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I would add, <clears throat> in Hermes's favor, he's not a Gnostic. He's very clearly the opposite of a Gnostic. He believes very much that the flesh, he actually makes the comment, and I can't find it offhand, that the flesh and the soul are are a commonality, that they are intertwined necessarily. Hmm. And so he, uh, he, that's, and he rails on why you have to keep obedience in the flesh. So he's very anti-Gnostic, which actually for me is one of the arguments why I would say he's, um, earlier than, than some of the people were arguing, because he seems to espouse an Ebionite heresy that is earlier than Gnostic, than the Gnostic heresy. So, huh. That makes that makes sense, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, at this point, you know, we've been talking for an hour and fifteen minutes, but you know, our, our the the stuff that'll actually probably make in the podcast will be closer to thirty to forty minutes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. do we want to? Is there anything else that really needs to be discussed from this? It didn't sound like we were all too enthralled with this. So I, do, I mean, do you want to mention adoptionism? Oh, oh yeah, that's actually important. Because, well, I kind of referenced it a little bit, right, when I was talking you, about... You yeah. kind of did. Yeah. We already kind of hit the passage, but we could, with editing magic, yeah. <laughs> make we could talk about adoptionism. and Yeah. An early heresy in the church, adoptionism was the belief that Jesus was just a good man. Not just a good man. He was such a good man that God adopted him as his son. So on this view, Jesus was not co-eternal with God. Um, but was in fact chosen to be the son of God, which there's one passage in Hermas, one that I already read, which seems to imply adoptionism. That is, he was so good in the flesh that God adopted him as the son. But then there is another, there are a couple of other passages that seem to say that Christ is preexistent too. So it seemed preexistent before the foundation of the universe. So it seems like both are at play in Hermas. Hard for me to reconcile that. Yeah, I some explanations I saw out there were that possibly he's actually talking about the believers being adopted rather than Christ, but oh, it but it's it's strange. It's yeah. it does seem like this could have been an early inspiration for yeah. adoptionism, though, for sure. Yeah, and it's see, in the way I think about it, when I'm reading all these writings, I'm also just thinking of it in terms of. It's interesting to see like the psychology of early believers and specifically ones that were writing stuff and trying to disperse it because uh, obviously these guys were educated normally if they were writing things and writing things. And so it's, it's interesting to at least see things that were entering early Christian consciousness and um, that that was kind of a thought since since it's here in Hermes, but anyway, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, for sure. I would add one more thing too, Chad, before we get done, just because I'm the resident charismatic in the group. Um, uh, Hermes clearly, and this is actually something that uh, fits with my own particular theological persuasion. So I don't even know if I should use Hermes since he's such a heretic. Maybe it's, maybe it's damning on me, (laughs) but he, uh, 
he clearly engaged in what people would think of as charismatic practices. Uh, he references the fact that believers would gather and, and as they begin to pray, that the Holy Spirit would actually uh, fill certain uh, individuals and would speak through those individuals. And he actually gives some criteria on how you can discern when it's the Holy Spirit who's, prop who's giving somebody a word of prophecy versus uh, somebody else, which as I read that, I'm like, oh, well, that sounds just an awful lot like um, services I've been to as a charismatic where people pray and in the midst of their prayer, uh, the idea is that people will perhaps get a word from the Holy Spirit, you know, things of that particular nature isn't, and they share them. But where's that? Isn't that like in a vision or something? That's not like... He's not actually seeing the church, right? Or mm, I don't think it's in a vision. I think it's oh. a statement of what happens uh, of how, uh, well, it might be a vision. It might have been one of the conversations with the woman. Oh. Uh, it's early. I know that. The woman who is the church. Oh, yeah, the, the woman who represents the church. Who's yeah. supposed to, yeah, represent the church. Which, by the way, that was actually, I kind of thought, one of the only, like, kind of cool things about this reading was it was cool seeing the woman, like, change and the fact that at let's say even that this was as late as 150 that they had thought of uh, the church as already kind of being an old woman who needed to be sort of restored because <laughs> they, I, I was like, that's <laughs> kind of interesting. But anyway, have you found your passage? Uh, I have, but there's too much to it. I think I more or less summarized it. Okay. This is a pretty long chapter. So I, I really, I wouldn't necessarily quote any of them. I also, yeah. I mean, just to add to the sort of humor of it all, and maybe again, uh, so oh, this I would, I would think that this would make the text feel worlds apart from 20, 21st century America. There was the section when the ten virgins strip down and start kissing uh, Hermes, and he just prays with them. <laughs> uh, yeah, very different. Yeah. So, in, as a final word. Uh, yay or nay to Shepherd of Hermas? I'm going to go nay. Yeah, if, if we're on like the Ebert Roper, thumbs up, thumbs down system. Thumbs down. Thumbs like. way down. Yeah, if we get the vote books on or off the island in the old uh, survivor mode, yeah, I would vote it out and off the island. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it, a unanimous vote down to the Shepherd of Hermas. Thank goodness um, the fathers had the... Uh, the keenness of sight to know not to include <laughs> that one in the scriptural canon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, much, I mean, you know, Origin and Eusebius give it some credence, but yeah, Tertullian wins out with this one. And, uh, I, you know, we, we, keep, we keep teasing a lot of different theologians, but Tertullian will be interesting. Speaking of, you know, charismatic, he seems to be a kind of charismatic uh, that we'll, we'll talk about uh, later. But I think it, we're going to be quite a few weeks still before we get to Tertullian. I'd like to do Irenaeus before that. Oh, yeah. Sweet. Awesome. Sounds like um, we're going to cover Heretic next week, huh, Chad? Yeah, Gospel Thomas. For various reasons, we will be looking at the Gospel of Thomas next week. While it is not often read as Orthodox theology, it provides a very helpful context for the chief enemy of Orthodox theology, Gnosticism. Furthermore, it is the darling child uh, of contemporary scholarship on the Gospels and the study of historical Jesus we will discuss to what extent it is even helpful in the next podcast. It is also a second century document that fits within the period that we are discussing. Please feel free to comment on our Facebook page, A History of Christian Theology, or on our blog at ahistoryofchristiantheology.com. We will be posting a unique article there that better provides a look at our methodology. Thanks again.